0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now, here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Roy Fenichel at the National Law Institute, providing free continuing legal education in New York and beyond. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest has focused his career on matters in immigration, assisting foreign companies wanting to expand their businesses in the U.S. and sending management personnel to undertake those expansions. A native of Argentina, raised in the U.S. with a work history that spans both the U.S. and South America, I'm pleased to welcome SMA law firm attorney Steve Maggi to Left Foot. Welcome, Steve.
1: Thank you, Nicole. I appreciate being on.
0: Happy to have you as a guest on Left Foot, Steve. As you know, our listeners are tuning in to learn how other attorneys have grown their business. Looking back on your business and the growth of your business, which of your personal strengths have really helped you acquire new clients and provide confidence to the clients that you do have specific to additional
1: business? I think the the first and most important thing is when you've decided to launch your own practice, that you make sure that you're perseverant because I have essentially attempted and tried every marketing, networking and business Development strategy that I think is out there. Pretty much all of them I have tinkered with. I've given a fair shot. And I think it takes over time through trial and error. It's important to try everything and then come up with a balance and reassess your strategy every year to see what is or isn't working. And to be honest with yourself, also, besides being perseverant, but being completely honest with yourself as to whether you're giving full effort and you're putting in 100% into each of these different possible referral source generators or client generators in order to come up with a formula. And I tried to be also flexible in terms of being able to adapt whatever my strategy is, because since the world adapts and the legal market adapts and what clients want also changes over time and also changes depending on the culture that you're of the clients you're working with. And in my case, I've worked with people from approximately 70 different countries in the last 12 years. I have to be able to adapt to what the their needs are, where they find the attorneys, how important certain factors are in terms of developing trust and then growing your client base within those different communities. So perseverance, honesty, and flexibility, I would say, are the the most important traits or qualities that you need to have to see the process through and to understand that it's not something that's static either. It's a constantly evolving process and you have to be willing to adapt and grow.
0: Great points. Absolutely. Those that would be valued, not only for those hanging out a shingle, but those in a firm. It does take a lot of trial and error. And I agree with you. It's a lot of stick-to-itiveness <laughs> to be able to grow your business, especially when you're starting out and, and building that reputation. Steve, at this point in the life cycle of your firm, do you sit down, say, on a yearly basis and create a strategy for where the firm is going to go specific to new business? Or is that something that at this point you're established and business is just coming in Is there a formal strategy you use?
1: Yes, I do. I have business consultants that I've used for the last four years. I moved my practice from Argentina to New York. As a U.S. immigration attorney, I'm in my second reincarnation here. When I moved my practice to New York, I was essentially starting from scratch with all my expertise that I had developed over eight years. I went from essentially being the only U.S. immigration attorney in an entire country to being one of approximately 1,000 in the most sought after city in terms of immigration by foreign nationals. And so I had to change my strategies completely and start over again. And I think what's inherent going to your question about whether this is something where I will reach a point where I don't need to undergo these efforts anymore and the clients just refer other clients. That really does not happen in immigration law. And the reason is that immigration law, you solve temporary and long term problems for your clients. And then once all those problems are solved, they get their green cards, they get citizenship or the natural term of or lifespan of their business that they use to sponsor their, their visas ends because they sell the business or they decide to do something else you have to start over again in terms of generating clients. So the client generation aspect of my practice is constant and I'm always having to do new things and get out in front of new people, both here in the US and overseas in order to continue to generate clients.
0: You mentioned having to do marketing-related activities both here in the States and outside of the States. Do you get business through referrals? And that's one question. And the second, when it comes to those marketing type of activities. Are you speaking? Are you mostly writing? Are you doing some of both? If you could address both questions, your referrals, and then from a marketing perspective, what you're doing to grow your business.
1: Okay. So in terms of referrals, as an attorney who specializes in one specific area, which is immigration, I am codependent upon other specialized attorneys, specifically, I guess you could say most profoundly with working with corporate attorneys, because most of Mm -hmm. the work we do is based on U.S. businesses that are created by foreign nationals as startups or as subsidiaries of, of foreign companies that in turn sponsor the visas that they need. So for every case that we do, we need a corporate attorney who's going to incorporate the company or the LLC. All the minutes, the organizational documents, et cetera, and the stock certificates, everything that creates that shows a complete formation of the company and eligibility to qualify as a sponsor for these petitions. It's very important to continue to develop relationships with attorneys because I refer them work, they refer me work, we work with the same exact clients and we are codependent. One of the things I do that has been very helpful the last two years is to give continuing legal education classes. Once every quarter, I teach two or three hour class about entrepreneurial visas. And in the room out of 40 or 50 people, there's probably six or seven immigration attorneys. I don't mind that because I'm teaching them things that will enable them to properly represent their clients. Sometimes I actually co-counsel with them to teach them if they're younger. And then the rest of the room are attorneys that specialize in other areas that could potentially refer me clients. So that's been very helpful. I would say of all the different marketing techniques that I've attempted and I'm And I continue to utilize it's been the most effective in terms of the time I put in versus what I get out of it because I've developed great working relationships, referral partners, and really it's two or three hours every two or three months that I have to invest past the time. Obviously, the upfront time to create a 50 page PowerPoint was was an extensive amount of time, but it also forced me to review all the laws and to see if anything's regulations or the interpretations of them in practice have changed. And it gets me up to speed. So I Every time I do the presentation, I I review everything and I see if there's anything that needs to be modified. For example, the changes that may happen in the immigration system under the new administration, that will just make me look more professional and on top of things in front of people who are also specialized in other areas who may be able to refer me clients. So I guess that's how I'm bridging the answer to those two questions. But I think that there's a very fundamental, important issue here, which is Immigration law, even if it's business or investment based, or if it's a U.S. employer sponsoring a professional from overseas. There's always a person, an individual that's receiving the visa, and sometimes they're family members, wives, husbands, partners, and children. There's a human element to this, and I think so that makes it fundamentally important. It's showing a high level of expertise. It's very important for me to get in front of people networking in the U.S., doing presentations in the U.S. and abroad, and I found that it's very important when you're talking to people overseas about what they could do, the different paths that exist to get to the U.S., when you've made an effort to meet with them and present in person and go to their home country, make that sort of effort. The human aspect of this is something that luckily, being someone that prizes and really cherishes that a lot, that has not changed. So we do reputation marketing where we ask our clients for reviews on Google and Avo. I do two blog articles a month. We send out a newsletter to about 5,000 people. We do the YouTube videos. So we do the marketing online, the SEO and and the, the writing, the videos, etc. So we cover that aspect and we make sure we get the reviews. The most important thing, the commonality that brings people together and that inspires trust are the referrals you get from individuals who over time trust you and then start sending clients your way. And that all comes from personal communication, personal interaction.
0: Personal communication, personal interaction, and Steve, good work. A lot of our guests talk about the fact that you can't over-rely on good work, but it's a necessary part of growing your business. You have to do good work. That's how you get referrals. We've had guests talk about getting referrals from people on the other side especially in family law matters, real estate matters, that they're often surprised when the person on the other side of the transaction refers a client to them because they were happy with their work.
1: I would say that that's a very true, Nicole, and that it's really the second referral that proves that you're doing good work because you may, anybody is capable of convincing someone to refer them one client, but then... Really, the the litmus test is how well does that first client go. My personal perspective, as a person who immigrated to the U.S. and who is from a family of immigrants, is I try to put myself in my client's shoes every time. I have the business law background and the finance law background to be able to understand conceptually how these businesses are formed, and to strategize how to set things up in a way that maximizes chances for visa approval. And I've done visa petitions at over 50 in 50 different countries at U.S. embassies and consulates. So I understand all these things. But the most important thing is to bring it back and to not lose focus on the individual needs of that client and how important those petitions are to that one person. So every time I get a referral, I go back to the first client I ever had. And I think, how can I do this the best way possible, knowing what that person feels like and how important it is to them? Of course, developing organic relationships, what I've learned over time is one of my strategies is to choose specific countries and to develop relationships with people in positions to refer clients like the commercial division of the different consulates in New York, for example. They get calls all the time and they refer Or U.S. embassies abroad that know of my work that are also comfortable telling people that who are interested in coming to the U.S. talk to Steve because he knows what he's talking about. So that's the strategic part. You can't just walk around and then just hope to bump into people and develop relationships. You have to also be strategic in terms of seeing who you can work well with and who you get along with well. And, of course, who you respect on an individual level because that's how you build the trust. And then those people will send you more clients. So once you've done right by them the first time, I think that opens the floodgates to a level of trust that enables them to refer without hesitation.
0: No, fantastic. And that idea of niching and really having a focused approach and then saying, where have I received strong referrals? Where are they working in the space in which you've specialized?
1: If there are any immigration attorneys that are listening, what most immigration attorneys do is they focus specifically on the country they're from or the languages that they speak. Maybe strategically, that's not the best. So for example, in New York, there are so many French speaking attorneys. Maybe France isn't the best country to target if it's already overserved if versus working with smaller countries where when you make an effort to get to know the consul and the president of the chamber of commerce and you go to the events and you realize they really don't have a person that's consistently interested in them and in their country you're going to foment a, a much stronger relationship that will last longer so it's not always going after the big fish it's really Each client is of equal importance, but being strategic about where the community is underserved and not just going for your common language or common country is also been something that's been very helpful for me. I'm always trying to think outside the box.
0: Time for a short break to thank our sponsor. The National Law Institute provides hundreds of hours of live video and online continuing legal education classes to a growing base of thousands of lawyers and other professionals in New York and beyond. For more information, contact Roy Fenichel, that's F-E-N-I-C-H-E-L, at nationallawinstitute.com. Thinking back or looking back on developing your practice, developing your firm, have there been particular situations that you were surprised resulted in a significant amount of work or a piece of work that you just really weren't thinking you were going to have access to? Is there a story there that you can share with our listeners?
1: Some immigration attorneys, they go to networking events and international networking events, especially they try to guess who they might be able to help. So they they listen in or they look for people that maybe they are obviously from other countries, a certain profile of people that they think might be good for them. And what I learned over the last five years, In New York, where I've been doing heavy networking, probably three or four events per week, is that you never know where... A great client or referral source will come from, and that you should not discriminate. There should be no profiling going on here. And the story I would tell is I went to an event where there was an older gentleman, American, and he came up to me and started talking. And after a while, he said to me, You know what? Our firm is actually looking to hire someone, and we don't know an immigration attorney. And so I ended up not only doing the visas for that employee that they hired, but another employee. And then I did the marriage case for the president and it ballooned into all these different cases and a very good relationship that I have with that company and it wasn't because I sought out the person. It was because you just never know who will actually be a good fit. And so you can never know too many people. That's what someone told me networking. The downside of that, of course, is that you always think, can I skip this event? Maybe this won't be fruitful. Do I need to go to every event out there? And obviously that's also not possible. The take home lesson is never assume that the people you will meet will not be beneficial to your practice.
0: No, I have to agree. I've closed business deals where I met someone either in a social situation where I was not planning to do some business and it ends up resulting in business. And I've also been to conferences where you do all the follow-up, you do all the right things, and it doesn't seem to be connecting. So I think that idea of picking and choosing, and, and obviously when you are there, putting your best foot forward in those conversations and, and being open. And Steve, I think that's a great point to cover. When I go to networking of Events and a lot of people do not like them. Attorneys, a lot of attorneys do not like going to those events. I've created a way to do it, which is comfortable. I mean, I say to myself, I'm going to go f- if I'm not traveling. I'm going to go for a half an hour. I'm going to go for an hour. I will. But I tend to focus on other people that might be there and not talking to anyone. Extending myself to them just to get a sense of who they are for those that are going out into the market. You know, what have you done that you've said, hey, you know, this is this has worked. What don't you do? Because you just know it's not going to be fruitful for you in growing your business.
1: Besides the CLEs and the presentations, the most important thing that I'm doing and that I will always continue to do is to send a monthly newsletter to all my contacts, current or past clients or any colleagues or professionals that I've met networking or that I've given presentations to. You were talking about networking and who to speak with. The great thing about doing a monthly newsletter is it's one of those touches where 12 times a year, everyone that's in your network knows what you're doing and it reminds them that you're still out there. So when you go to networking events, you can say hello to those people, but you don't get caught in the trap of spending two hours catching up with People that you saw last month that already know what you do and that already get your newsletter. So you can go and seek out new people to meet that add to your network. So I, I think that's been the most useful tool that I've that I've been using for about three years and I will continue to use.
0: Great tool. I absolutely agree. You have to stay in front of folks. And I think technology and the use of technology, you mentioned SEO earlier, has really required that we all market our services. That said, other things are changing in our industry. I know a lot of lawyers are saying that there's more pressure, there's more competition. Obviously, you experienced increased competition when you came to the States and are now part of a larger group of lawyers who do what you do. Are you experiencing other pressures, whether that be price pressures or people really going to alternative service providers for the type of work that you do? Or is that not part? of the industry in which you're in. And if it is part of your space, what are you doing to counter that?
1: It's a huge part. There's a few aspects of this. So you have in the United States, you have immigration law services that are not attorneys, that are essentially paralegals. You have what are called notarios, which is notaries. But in the Latin American use of that word, for example, in Argentina, you if to become a notary, a notario, you actually have to go through almost the full five years of law school. And then essentially you're doing administrative law, but not going in front of judges. People come to the US and they see signs that say notarios when, when they're Spanish speakers, or even people from civil law countries that don't have an immigration legal system like we have in the US or we have in other common law countries. They think that it's the same thing as an attorney. So fundamentally, they don't see the difference. And because those service providers charge less than an attorney does, there are thousands upon thousands of people that use their services. So we're competing with those. And then overseas, in non-common law countries, there are also immigration service providers. So some of my competitors in the markets where we have affiliate offices overseas where we provide services are not U.S. attorneys. So there's nobody strategizing which visa you should apply for, guiding them through the process, making sure they're meeting all the legal requirements available for consultations throughout until the submission and then following up with the consulates, embassies, immigration, homeland security, etc. They don't have anyone who's actually backing them and supporting the process because they think that it's the same thing because in their country or let's say, in Europe, for example, where there's open borders, they think that, wow, it's really not something that's complicated. And in U.S. immigration law is extremely complicated and difficult. Always, always dealing with that, both in the U.S and outside the U.S. Going to your question about how to deal with that, unfortunately, one out of five cases I get were denied. So I have to turn these cases around and convince the embassy or immigration services here in the U.S., despite the previous refusal that they actually qualify, which is even more difficult. And so obviously, I'm not very happy with this legal panorama that I'm I'm in, but it's a reality of, of what we do. So what I try to do is educate people as much as possible as to all the barriers that exist
0: That's really an interesting part of it. And I would imagine there's a whole lot of complication around that. I would hope that there are particular cases that you say, yes, I can change the outcome of this. But I would assume, Steve, that you use pretty stringent criteria of which cases you'll take on, that many of them, because there's been a run, they're not likely to have success, especially considering the current environment. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you qualify those cases and accept the ones that you know you can actually? get changed or altered?
1: I've got somewhere around a 95% approval rate over the years. Most immigration attorneys are somewhere in the 60% range. That's due to two factors. One is they're taking cases that never had a chance from the beginning. I have a pretty high profile client that I just got a visa and they went to a prestigious firm that put them on the completely wrong visa track from the beginning. So when I heard this hypothetical situation, they proposed to me, I said, Well, you don't qualify for this one, and then you do qualify for this. And the two things they said to me were, once they told me what had actually happened, is, number one, we were told we qualified for this, and our lawyer told us to appeal, and we lost all this time and money. And the second thing they said was, the lawyer never mentioned this other possibility. And then two months later, they were in the U.S. with their new visas for five years, doing what they should have done. So it really depends on the case sometimes there is no hope at all. There's no chance. And so what I do is I don't take the case. I don't take a consultation fee. I explain to the client or potential client how they might qualify, what alternatives may exist, or in cases where there's no solution, I will tell them up front there's no solution because that's what I owe to them to let them know after the consultation exactly where they stand and what possibilities are out there. So it's not that I'm not taking difficult cases. I'm capable of getting these cases approved. If I can find a strategy and a solution, I can do it. But if I can't, then I, then obviously I'll let the client know. And so sometimes I get referrals from people that I didn't take on because they're grateful that I explained to them why it was impossible. Unfortunately, a lot of times they're coming to me after somebody's already taken a lot of money when there was no real solution in sight in the first place. And that's the most frustrating thing about what I do.
0: You have the benefit, though, of being so specialized in this. You can pretty quickly determine if you're going to have success and, and be that advocate and then also suggest When there isn't an option,
1: I feel more and more confident over time because I also get cases from other immigration attorneys that are in what's called a request for evidence phase, where when I review their work, I realize that they either took on a case they didn't know how to handle or they mishandled it and then I get called in to sort of save the day. I feel bad for the client because they didn't go down the right path but when I'm able to get those cases approved it's also extremely satisfying for me. It just reinforces my feeling that I really am on top of it and that gives me more confidence to go out and to talk about these things and to try to find solutions for people. The most rewarding thing for me that I'm able to do is Suggest strategies and solutions for people who never thought they could get here. And now they're here running businesses and living out whatever their version of the American dream is. That motivates me every day.
0: Two additional questions. Definitely want some feedback from you about your experience. The first would be for the lawyer just starting out. Possibly the immigration lawyer just starting out who really wants to create their own practice, have control over their destiny through hanging out their own shingle. Any advice you'd give them specific to establishing themselves in the market and really getting those first clients?
1: Yeah, I would say two things. One is maybe more general than just immigration attorneys, but as someone who was a corporate and finance attorney first, and in law school, we learn all sorts of law. What I would say to immigration attorneys or anyone who's hanging out there on shingle, if you don't completely love what you do and you are you don't wake up every day saying, I'm, I love this kind of law and I'm so excited to practice it, then you should not do it. I would never, and perhaps I'm not a millionaire for this reason, I I would never make a decision to practice a specific kind of law because it's It brings more money in. I think the money will eventually come if you're the kind of person that does it because you're passionate about it. You're going to be successful at it because you're also going to have this desire to learn everything you can so you don't steer people in the wrong direction. There's no worse feeling than talking with someone and thinking, maybe I should have thought of this or maybe I didn't explore that. It motivates you to be completely on top of it. So specializing is very important, but the passion is what's going to drive you to really want to know everything you can. So you know every day when you go to sleep, you've done the best you can for your clients. And so my advice would be, if you're going to go into immigration law, make sure that's what you love. Don't do it because you think there's an opportunity to make money. I've seen too many immigration attorneys come and go because they thought they saw a window of opportunity, but they weren't passionate about it, so they weren't driven to know everything they needed to know and to think outside the box and to find solutions for their clients. So I think that's the most important advice I would give is do something else. If you're not passionate about it, if they start it and they realize they would rather do tax law or bankruptcy or whatever motivates them, That's great. And generally speaking, if they don't love what they do, maybe they shouldn't be attorneys at all.
0: Such great advice. Quick question on technology. Is there a particular technology that you've seen in your space that you think is innovative and has made a difference in the way that you lead your practice and and work with your clients?
1: Yeah, it's ironic because in my personal life, I try to slow things down and and I don't use technology as much. But as an attorney, when I, for example, when I set up my practice in Argentina on my own and said, I'm going to do U.S. immigration law in another country. The first thing I did before I launched the practice was I spent months getting the website developed, making sure that all the information was out there. So I've always believed in technology being super important. And I'm still always tweaking the website and working on those things. But I've also tried to find ways to be more efficient because for an immigration practitioner, since most of us charge flat fees, it's in our best interest to use technology as much as possible to maximize efficiency. I started using Dropbox, for example, putting all my cases on the cloud, which creates complete transparency in the process. The clients are uploading, I'm uploading, I'm writing, the information comes in, I put the cases together, we print them out sometimes if they're not electronically filed and then we scan them and then they're all in one place and the client has access to their entire folder and the case, which you hear a lot of horror stories about people calling their lawyers and they can't get a copy of the receipt notice or the document. We have essentially no paper. The paper gets printed out to get the petitions together once we submit them they're out, they're gone. And then we also use a program that sends electronic questionnaires to clients and those populate all the different forms simultaneously, which we review. So nobody's wasting time. And so I think that technology has been a huge, huge part of my practice. The caveat here is I would never use technology or outsource labor if that meant at any level of what I do that the quality was diminished.
0: Well, and that's likely why, even though you're taking on challenging cases, you're still at a 95% success rate, is that you're still personally engaged and doing that oversight of those
1: cases. I don't know any other way.
0: There you go. A very generous interview. I so appreciate it. And I know our listeners will as well. Any last points you'd like to make before we say goodbye?
1: What I would say is, don't be afraid to leave the big money and the big law firm. Because when you hang out your own shingle, That's when you're going to have the personal contact with the clients and be essentially guiding them through 100% of all these processes, no matter what kind of law you do, it will be infinitely more rewarding, maybe not economically, but intrinsically, emotionally, in every way that really matters. If you do hang out your own shingle and you choose the path that you're passionate about, don't wait to do it.
0: Excellent. Steve, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot.
1: Thank you so much, Nicole. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening
0: to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot.